the 15 year old self that was really close to taking his own life, I would say you are worthy. You are enough. Um, you will get through this. You are loved and you will be loved. I would say that I know this feels impossible and that you feel so alone and like the only one, um, but you're not, um, that you'll find your people someday. Um, they will love you for you. Uh, and, and you will be more you than you will ever realize in this moment. Welcome everyone. I'm Sam Sebastian and you're listening to How Are You Doing Really? In today's episode, I'm joined by my friend Chung Hao Fu. Him and I met a couple of years ago at Esalen and it was an honor to have him on as a guest today. We got to talk about a number of topics um, as you'll hear just varying from personal experience of COVID, uh, living with family at the moment, and sharing about personal experiences uh, that he had growing up and how that really led to him finding his way into education and working with the nonprofit organization Leading Educators. Um, Chung Hao is just a... <laughs> beautiful, sweet, loving soul. And I am just really honored to share this conversation with all of you. Welcome everyone. I am Sam Sebastian. And today I'm joined by my friend, Chung Hao Fu. And we actually met at Esalen, um, what was it, 2018? That sounds right. I think I think yeah. about two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years ago. Um, you were there for a couple of retreats and, and I was there for uh, a training, I believe. Yeah. I think it was the train the trainer massage certification, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 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 Definitely. And, and you're in uh, Austin? Houston. Houston, Houston Texas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the less cooler cousin to Austin. Uh, <laughs> I have not been to Houston yet. I've, I've been to Austin uh, a couple times, as I think we've talked about. But yeah, I wanted to have you on today um, because I, I was really just looking forward to reconnecting with you and um, hearing just how you've been throughout this uh, tumultuous year. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I'm honored to be on, and this has been such—I mean, such a delightful show. And I feel like you do such a beautiful job of creating space and empathy, and just kind of creating um, a place for kind of just hear how how folks really are doing in this time. So excited to be here! Excited to talk about anything and everything uh, that uh, could be interesting for folks, and and to see how you're doing too, really, uh, Sam Sebastian. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to also just um, put out there that you are an educator and a nonprofit leader. Um, you're you're not the CEO of the company that you work for, is that right? Yeah. So I um, lead an education nonprofit called Leading Educators, 
And our role, we partner with school systems across the country to design and facilitate uh, the learning for teachers and principals and, and district leaders. And as you can imagine, there's been a lot uh, that's been in motion the last nine months to really think about how we support schools and, and school leaders at, at this time. Yeah. I mean, there's so many like new things to have to navigate during this time. For sure. Thank you for doing that work. And, and I definitely want to hear a bit more about that at some point. Um, how about we just begin with just what what's what's up for you uh, today? You know, like how how are are things? What's present emotionally? Yeah. Well, I was I was all uh, I was all prime for the how are you doing really, but I uh, I'm excited to talk about that. What's going on today? So um, today we actually have um, so my husband Marcus, his parents are with us uh, today because um, his dad is a cancer survivor, uh, but currently also getting treatment. Uh, for a stage for lymphoma. So they come, uh, as many of our friends have come, they come to Houston because we have an amazing medical center and a really um, amazing cancer center in MD Anderson. It's where my mom was treated for cancer as well. Um, and my mom, um, you may know, um, lives with me and my husband. Um, as she was getting older, it felt really like a privilege for her to want to kind of live with us. And so we have this home where it's kind of multi-generational and we've got, we've got space and there's also kind of the ability as a extended family to take morning walks together, to take meals together. And I think it was, it was such a blessing. We did this about a year ago as, she, as her health was, was um, not in the best shape, but given the pandemic and given the, all of the stress that's happening with the election and the overt systemic racism, it's just been amazing to have her close by. Um, and so that's, that's, what's here. It's a day of family, uh, that's, that's all around the house right now. Um, you know, um, some things medical, some things just enjoying each other's company and there may be some, some food delivery uh, happening by me <laughs> any minute <laughs> as well, but that's, what's going on here. Um, and I, I would just say, um, such a privilege to be able to work with educators and to be, in like doing important work at this moment that feels vital. And also just a lot of, I would say, stress uh, each week, trying to figure out what it is that we ought to be doing in like really uncertain and, and changing circumstances and, and trying to try to meet the moment. Yeah. I mean, one, I just want to acknowledge uh, how I, I, I talk about this with my partner a lot um, and, and he brings it up too is like at some point having a space where our families or our parents can come and stay potentially live with us at some point and I just think it's really beautiful that y'all have the ability to do that and and I mean the circumstances I, I wish um, were different and and but it, it is nice to know that they're still living and thriving and um, y'all get to spend time together and have that. I, I, I think about just as we get older, oftentimes we move away from our family and just have to, to take trips to go and visit. And it just might be, um, yeah, just a really special experience to have, have family so close by. Yeah, totally agree. 
How um how is your relationship with your your mom? It's it's great. I think it's interesting because I I was I think I was a handful uh, <laughs> as a youngster, and I think um, it's so. I have nieces. I have three nieces and nephews now, and we're constantly talking about how our personalities as young people are reflected in a kind of our three and four year old nieces and nephews, and so. Uh, my niece Valerie is incredibly headstrong and confident and stubborn. And I think that is exactly how I was as a young person. And like really, uh, I think a bit of a terror uh, up through um, up through young adulthood. And um, I think also a lot of it had to be had, of course, had to do with growing up gay in a pretty conservative part of Texas with a pretty conservative family and, and not feeling like you know, there's anyone that I could, could talk to about that or that I would be accepted if I did, uh, which turned out to be the case when I, when I finally did come out to my, um, my parents, which is right before I left for college, it was a really, really, um, difficult transitional period. And, um, yeah. And I think, you know, I came very close to, to taking my own life as a teenager, which seems so strange to say that now, that I'm in my forties to think that that was a reality for me as like a, as a young person. But I think it's a big part of why I decided to go into education because like very um, rooted in my person is still the experience of feeling really powerless, feeling really worthless and really feeling like there's nothing that you could do um, to fix that. And I don't think that's an experience I want for any other human ever. And so I feel like that's, that's a big part of why I feel privileged to work in education but with my mom now, like our lives are so different. It's like, you know, flash forward almost like 25 years from that moment. And I think it's great to be able to reconnect um, as adults, to be able to take care of each other, to also give each other like space and comfort and love. And I think um, like what a privilege to kind of come full circle on that, I think. Um, and to have the ability to try to, to recreate the relationship that, maybe you would have wanted earlier in your life, but you weren't ready uh, at that moment. And so that's, it's been really great. And she and my husband get along really well. He's of course, as you may, I think I've mentioned, he's like the nicest, kindest person. And so I, I actually think they may get along better as roommates most of the time than I do. I'm a, I'm a, I can be a little more uh, stubborn in my ways. So. Wow. You, you shared a lot in, in that <laughs> and, and I, I don't want to miss some, some points that I really want to address. Um, but just going back to your share about, um, almost taking your life as a teenager and, um, being able to get through that yeah. and, and then that having and so much of an impact on your life and kind yeah. of steering you towards the work that you do now. It's just like, wow, you really took that challenge and that probably pretty traumatic experience and, and kind of turned that into something that you use to uh, put your work out into the world and, and sharing from firsthand experience. I, it's just... I um I don't I know that it it definitely crossed my mind as a kid to um to do that but it I I I 
felt a lot of fear um, just even kind of going in that direction. And for me, it was more of, okay, just like push everything down that I'm feeling and just focus on whatever's good. Um, and I don't think that's the healthiest way of, of coping with, with my emotions and what I was going through. But I, I do really just admire um, your resilience. And um, well, it's interesting you say it. Cause I, I do feel like, um, for me at least, so much of, of life does involve like working to heal yourself as you are also working to like love and connect with others. And it's interesting to me that you um, mentioned like repression and pushing things down being a theme of your own upbringing. Cause I, I think of you as such an open hearted, curious, uh, exploratory person. So I wonder if there's not this kind of theme for you too, where like you're, you're, you're actively working to undo some of those, those deep patterns in the way that then now you live your life now that you're a more fully actualized, uh, adult. Totally. I, I think, you know, it, it didn't really start to shift for me until my late twenties, almost when I was 30, I went through a pretty, um, big experience. I'll say where I, I've mentioned this before in other episodes of just kind of hitting rock bottom and realizing like I need to do something to change the way that I'm living my life. And I, I chose um, before to, to use drugs and alcohol to kind of cope with the emotions and the challenges that were coming up for me. And I was able to find various practices such as uh, yoga and meditation and also therapy being a huge support in this process. And to this day, I'm, I'm still in therapy. I've kind of gone in and out of seeing a therapist. And as you know, and we've worked together, um, I've studied the Hakomi method, which is a somatic psychotherapy method. And I really just I, I feel like the work that I'm doing in myself is really uh, impacting the work that I want to put out into the world. You know, it's where I feel the most excitement, the most charge. And, and it's been really healing for me to just support others through their own healing process and continue to, to go through it on my own. Um, and, and I imagine being in the field that you're in, you have a, a similar opportunity of just impacting so many people and yeah, uh, potentially kids. Well, that's, it's interesting that you say that. Cause I think one of the things that we have been, so I think we did about nine weeks of, of training sessions this summer with different school districts across the country. And, um, in some places, I think there was a real eagerness to kind of get back to the academic work because like we're behind, we lost all this time in the spring and we just had to get back, you know, to academics. And I think one of the things that we found ourselves saying over and over again is that um, educators have gone through something really traumatic. Students have gone through something really traumatic. And if we are, and if we're actually going to have a successful year, we have to take time to reconnect as people. And that, um, I mean, you know, everything from check-in circles to deeper experiences to kind of reconnecting to personal narratives to kind of telling stories were things that we, we spent a lot of time building into our um, summer learning, the summer of educators, because we felt like 
we have to create spaces for teachers to feel whole if they're going to be able to create spaces for kids to feel whole. And, um, and obviously there's no substitute for being in person, but I've over the last few years, I've been really, you know, pleasantly shocked at how much connection is possible through something like zoom or through conversations. And there is a lot that there, there's a lot of spaces for people to open up and to connect and to reexamine how they are and why they're doing the things that they're doing. And I think that um, we can't miss that people have felt isolated and lonely and afraid and, and kids most of all. And I think that there are, there's so many conversations <laughs> where kids are feeling confused, feeling like they've, they've lost a year of their life, feeling angry, feeling isolated. And so we, we have to find ways to, um, support our educators in making time for that to be the reality of the school experience too. And I think some teachers are like leaning hard into that. And I think in other places, there's just less permission and less modeling of what that, what that could look like. Yeah. I, I think in a time like this where there is a lot of isolation happening and the, the lack of ability to meet together in groups and just for kids to go to school and be with their friends and be in that environment, they need some sort of connection to kind of anchor into uh, as we go through this time, because there's, I mean, as it is, there's students who weren't able to graduate with the rest of their class, you know, or just missing those pretty big experiences in, in people's lives, I think. And, my niece, she just started high school um, just this past month. And I, I talked to her and I was just like, how's it going? She's like, yeah, it's okay. Like we haven't really gotten into much of the learning. Uh, there's a lot of rules um, that they have to kind of abide by. They, they have to be in certain parts of the house when they're on the Zoom call. If, if they want to talk to their teacher one-on-one, -on -one, a parent has to be present and I and, and I know that she just wants to be like around her friends and, and get that like felt experience and so I've I've just tried to really offer her my love and support and, and let her know you know yes right now it really is not ideal it sucks I'm sure you miss a lot of these things and I really think we're gonna get through this and you're gonna have that opportunity to eventually meet with everybody again in person. I I wanted to also um, just talk about your your relationship with your mom and that the the dynamics. I, I mean I notice it in my own relationship with my mom and, and I'm sure for you it's it's different. But as as I've like growing up I can reflect on how there's very much a parental and dynamic that happens between me and her and me and my dad. And it actually has like impacted the way that I relate with Finn, my partner, um, just because it's, it's such a, it's part of how we develop, you know, we learn to communicate and relate from our family, from our parents. And, and we think about like our attachment styles are, are really impacted by that. And I mean, there's there's so much to your specific experience with your mom coming and living with you as she's going through cancer treatment and 
So there's a lot of vulnerability and almost like a switching of the roles, I imagine. Yeah. And then also living together, you know, it's just like, do the dynamics that happened when you were younger kind of come out or have, have you all been able to really communicate about that and shift those dynamics? Such a great question. Um, I, I think it's so, so one of the things is, um, her health has gotten so much better since she's been staying with us. And I think that that's been like such, such a blessing. And, um, so she had lost a lot of lung capacity, over um, through chemo, chemotherapy and then an infection that came after. But um, she's walking daily. She's like feeling more active. And I think she's, she's having a lot of meals with us. And I think it's just a different experience than when she was living by herself and, and frankly watching a lot of Law & Order SVU, which I think is addictive, but I don't think leads to the most positive mental outlook on the world. Um, and, I, and I think she's just doing really well. And I think that... Um, it feels like if I were to characterize the dynamic, it feels like people were coming to it as um, like more like there is an independence right now that we can then bring to intentionally creating shared spaces that we're kind of, we're all opting into. Mm -hmm. And um, my husband and I are both, we do a lot of facilitation in our respective jobs. So we will like actively try to create moments. So we did, for example, for both of our parents, we gathered the round table and like, we're going to do, we're going to do a three hour facilitative visioning process for the next year. We're going to reflect on the year before we're going to look at, we're going to look at challenges. We're going to come up with mantras for the year. We're going to do some visioning for what's like, so this is, I think a little far for what our, how our adults are, how our parents would normally consider um, a new year's ritual, but we were trying to do those types of things that I think, which are, are really meaningful for my relationship, my husband, um, and me, um, with our parents as well. Like, cause I think, um, cause if you believe, I think in what you're doing in your kind of your paid life, I think you, you should bring that into your, your, your personal life too. And so we've been, we've been doing a lot of that. I will say like, there will be a time where to your point, I think more dependence will happen and we're, we're planning for that. And so like, as we're thinking about, oh, if we remodel a house, we're like, we're having, we're having direct conversations about like, oh, how might we design this bathroom to be wheelchair accessible one day? So like, you may, we probably won't need that for another, you know, stretch, but why mm -hmm. not, why not think about that now and trying to have direct conversations about that? Um, it does bring mortality, um, like into the day to day more. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. And I will say last thing, um, so much of Asian culture is about ancestor, well, at least Chinese Confucian culture, which, um, we have the ancestors up in the living room. Like my mom still like puts out vegetables and fruits for them and we pray to them and we honor a lot. We do follow a lot of like very traditional Chinese customs. Um, but it is like a very ancestor driven and like elders driven culture. Um, and we, and we do that. And I think so much of my youth was also fighting against that and feeling like, Oh, I, I can't be my own person. If the expectations are to basically do everything that the, the older generation tells you to do, particularly when it came to my own sexual orientation. And I think like, I'm, uh, I think I fought like hell and I, now it's like kind of on the other side of it. And, um, and I think, I, th I think we're coming at it more from a sense of interdependence and, 
consent and shared space creation, um, mm-hmm. which I think is what I believe in for, for most of the spaces that I go into. And so trying to create that in our house, I think is really important too. That's really beautiful. And it's almost like a model for people to kind of go off of, or even just based on their, their culture, their background, just inviting in this new possibility of a way of being, you know, I, I think about one of my experiences that I had at Esalen with, I, I don't know if you got to attend or if they were holding any open seats. I haven't gone to uh, an open gestalt. seat. I am uh, I'm so um, sad that I've not sat uh, in on any of the open seats, but yes, would love, yeah, yeah, would love to hear. Yeah. It, you know, I, I had a really um, healing experience with an open seat at Esalen. Uh, one of the first times that I was there, where I got to be in the open seat and there's a facilitator who's holding space and kind of setting up the the practice for everyone, breaks it down. But uh, as I was in the seat, it, it's kind of like group therapy. You're, you're being witnessed by the people in the circle. Everything's confidential. And I got to talk to him as if he was my dad. And I had a pretty traumatic experience of being hit by my dad with a hanger repeatedly telling me, you're not gay, you're not gay, you're not gay. And after that experience, I was just like, he's not my dad. Like I, I just, I can't, I can't see him in that role anymore. And I had to like kind of cut things off and there, there was a good, amount of time that went between that experience and then our reconnecting and part of it had to do with with being in this open seat and getting to say some of the things that I was really feeling that I hadn't voiced to him and we it was before Thanksgiving and I had talked to Finn about my experience at Esalen in the open seat and how I felt like maybe I can actually really have this conversation with my dad and um, kind of like what you were mentioning, you know, this these spaces in which you're communicating in a certain way and, and we're kind of bringing that, like if it's something you really value and hold true, then you want to bring that into your personal life as well. And so I took that experience and I kind of, I created my own little circle. I invited my my brother and my sister at the time and they weren't able to make it, but it was me and my parents. And we sat down, I led a meditation, I kind of informed them, you know, I want to do this intentionally so that we can have space to just talk openly about anything that we may be holding on to that we haven't voiced. And as I went through this, I, I just let my dad know, you know, I was really hurt when that happened. And I haven't been able to forgive you. And I really want to know like what was going on for you, where you're coming from. And you know, he, he apologized and he shared with me that he didn't think that I chose to be gay and he knows that I was born the way that I am and just never uh, had I ever imagined him, him saying those things to me and apologizing, you know, admitting that what he had done was hurtful and wrong. And it just, it, it really like, just showed me anything is possible. I mean, I was pretty fortunate. My dad's still alive and he was open to hearing where I was coming from. Some people don't have the 
that, that kind of relationship with their parents. And so I just hearing you share about the ways in which you and your husband kind of set space and the tone for the way you co live and communicate with your families, I just think is just really, really beautiful. And I, I admire that a lot. And just to hopefully aspire to have something like that once we have land and the space to, yeah. to have them with us. Yeah. It's definitely not perfect, but it feels like we are we are um we're doing our best to put our values into actions with the people that we love and are connected to which obviously I feel like is is so much of of why we are here and what we're supposed to be doing particularly in in moments like these mm-hmm. I have I have similar I have similar father stories <laughs> Sam Sebastian <laughs> but and I I I I feel I feel I feel um, I feel it when you tell those stories. Mm. How during this time, what what really has helped you to stay centered? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, do you know? Um, have you ever read or watched the A Wrinkle in Time, either the book or the movie? I don't think so. No. Okay. All right. So old sci-fi, uh, kids book favorite, but there is, um, there's a scene towards the end where kind of the heroine is told by this, um, this magical being, uh, like I give you the gift of your faults. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's as she's going, um, anyway, long story, but uh, like the things that make her kind of stick out and that she's always been frustrated or angry about are, are the things that she thinks of as her faults end up kind of being a thing that really kind of saves her in this very dark moment. And for her, there are things like kind of anger and frustration and like just kind of being um, different. And so I say that because there are, there are parts where I think um, my, my faults and foibles and kind of anger and frustration are actually what are driving me, to be honest, in some moments. Mm-hmm. And then there are other moments where I've been spending a lot of time, I think like you, like meditating and reading and walking and thinking, and it's like a very kind of peaceful moment. And so I, I find myself going back and forth between these two poles a lot. Um, and so on the anger side, um, like one of the things that has come up is just when you there are so many stories of injustice that are popping up at this. And then obviously they've always been there and they've been there and we have a, we have a country that is, is rooted in racism and it's founding and it's come. So it's, and it's, I, I would say like, this is such a turning point because we have such a moment of racist ideas being spewed by national leaders all the time. And we also have people actively working against it in anti-racist ways and it's both. And so we've got this confluence of things happening. And I think the anger that comes out of that, um, I find a thing that kind of will, mo- will kind of animate me and like get me up and like working in times. And, I, and I'm not a person normally driven by anger, but like, it's definitely there. Um, and I think one of the things too, is like, there are, are moments where um, you can see really great things happening for kids by, by teachers who are doing like Herculean, like thoughtful, amazing instruction in tough circumstances. And then you see things that are really um, not great, like from stories like where um, a student was, was sent to the police this week because he had like a Nerf gun um, 
in his house and it was um, a black seventh grader. And then the teacher's response was to record it by zoom and then send it to the police, which makes no sense. And now this child is like fighting a police record. And so um, for example, in Houston, we have 11,000 kids last year who referred into the criminal justice system. About 80% of those are black and Latinx students. It's a big part of what my husband does is like working with educators to organize for like decriminalizing so many of the policies that exist uh, and that disproportionately affect black and Latinx students in particular. Like, so there's like, there's a lot of fucking rage, I think that then like inspires, like he and I to both kind of get up and like work hard when there are a lot of, there's a lot of heaviness and there's a lot of, okay, I'd rather, <laughs> rather kind of take the day. You're kind of like, okay, but actually there's so much that's happening that, um, that we need to, give voice to, to be a part of, to have conversation, to create conversations around. I think it's a really, um, it's an incredibly unique moment in our history where, where there's a lot at stake, I think. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of the rage piece. <laughs> and then the other side, um, I've actually um, been reading over and over again, a lot of, of um, Thich Nhat Hanh's writings on love. Have you ever read any of his stuff? Yeah, I've I've read uh, a couple of his books. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're. I feel like I find them really, really soothing, and I find him really wise. And I love, I love this notion that in Buddhism, love isn't about a feeling or a connection, but rather it's about a capacity. And so, like you know, it's true love if you are able to engender in the other person a sense of freedom, a sense of kindness, an easing of their suffering. Um, a sense of kind of universal universality in your connection, like, and, and, and obviously there are mantras that go with that. And so Marcus and I will actually use those mantras with each other a lot these days. So it'll be things like, uh, like my darling, I suffer, or even like my darling, I see you and I'm happy or like, you know, like just kind of naming and normalizing the fact that um, the presence of the person that you love brings you happiness or that, like we're going to be suffering in this moment and like you need, you need the love and presence and touch and hug of, of the person that you care about. And so I feel like we do that about five times a day right now. Cause there's so much, uh, there's just so much happening um, right now. That's overwhelming. Um, so I think that's been really helpful. And then I would, the last thing I'll just say is like, it's been interesting. I find myself paying a lot more attention um, to sensory things to like, whether it's like a, um, like a scent that we really love or like a soap or a blanket or like a bread. I mean, it doesn't have to be expensive or extravagant, but I find myself because we are a little more sensory deprived right now, like Mm -hmm. kind of, um, really finding little moments in my day where I'm paying attention to something like physical or sensory that kind of brings me back into my body and kind of mm-hmm. like allows myself to be filled with gratitude that this thing exists and I, I get to like enjoy it. That so those are those are some things. <sighs> Again, <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> I, it's just I, I I love what you're you're bringing into the conversation. You know, it's just like oh, as you were talking about the kids in in the school district and and the percentages of who were black and who were latin it's just really saddening to to hear and 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 also enraging and i just hear you talk about the 
the the the scope of your emotions during this time and not not only just trying to focus on being really centered and calm and as if everything's okay it's like no you're actually allowing yourself to feel this anger and you're finding a really healthy way of expressing that you're letting it galvanize you into what you're putting out into the world and and driving you to work and <laughs> and have these conversations with people. Cause I, I really think it's just so important that we're having these conversations that we're not just letting it be another thing that just slides by, you know, it, it can't continue this way. It's just so out of balance in, in my opinion. And it, I, I almost like started crying when I heard the, the numbers that you were talking about. It just really, just saddens me that that's that's what's been happening and it's just so unfair yeah well um i mean like one one stat that uh, we've been talking about i think it's something like eight thousand students that um our largest school district here in houston has not had any kind of contact with since the pandemic has started whether it's food distribution or um, counseling, but the district just doesn't even know where students are at times because there are so many. And um, I mean, I think one of the things that um, so many amazing school systems have like gone so far above and beyond, like there's so many stories of principals, like with Wi-Fi cards, like going around neighborhoods, making sure that every family has Wi-Fi. There have been, mm lots of donors that have stepped up to make sure the kids have devices and laptops so they can access instruction safely. And then there's a question like beneath all of that, like why, why do we as a society, when we know how important technology and Wi-Fi is like, why do we wait for this to ensure that families have access to things like the internet or technology? And I think that, um, I think it's raised questions about like, why did we accept those kinds of, gaps and access even before the pandemic. And obviously now it's even worse. Um, so I, I do think there are, there are lots of things about this moment where people are, are, are stepping up, making incredible efforts. And that's also kind of revealing some inequities. And I also think that there's also tons of, at the same time, misinformation, <laughs> continued racism, like false narratives being spun, fear being stirred up. And so it's like, it is kind of, you feel these forces kind of um, at play in our country right now. And it's hard to know how things will, will tip. And I think that's really scary. Yeah. It's, it's what's so bizarre is just the amount of false information or misinformation that's put out there. And some people don't even bother checking into it to see if it's actually true. They just take it on as if that's their truth. And it's like, so I, I really think some people are living in denial. It's just like so bizarre to me. It's like, how do you not see what's actually happening? Yeah. When you see videos of this violence, yeah. when there's repeatedly more and more people being killed unjustly and people being treated differently based on the color of their skin yeah. and who they are. Oh, <laughs> I know for me, it just, it brings up a lot of energy and 
just not always knowing like what to do and how to, how to use that, um, to put it to some, something good. Cause I, I think oftentimes I can get overwhelmed by everything that's going on and, and yeah. not, not able to focus and, and kind of direct my energy in a, a really clear way or, or path. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, one of the questions that you had kind of put down was how has your organization been working on systemic racism with educators and with your own team? Yeah, um, for sure. So, um, like I said, we, we leading educators, we partner with schools and school systems around developing um, really impactful learning for teachers and like learning that, that research would suggest will transfer into benefits, uh, beneficial instruction for kids. And, and one of the things we actually spend a lot of time talking about is equity and anti-racism and the internalized bias that, that all of us have um, just from growing up in the United States. So it's not about bad people per se, but it's about kind of the smog that we all prevent from growing up here. And I think that um, like the way, way I think about it is that like we, we had a country that had for hundreds of years justified bondage and enslavement of our own people, right? And so in order to justify that, we as a country created lots of racist ideas to somehow rationalize this terrible thing that some humans were doing to others. And those racist ideas continue to permeate and those inequities permeate and the gaps in resources permeate like, and they echo through generations, right? And that um, if we don't talk about that and we don't talk about all of the inequitable access to resource, if we don't talk about um, the bias that we are raised in from being consumers of media and we just kind of go into the classroom and we haven't worked to kind of unlearn some of our expectations and we haven't done the self-work so that we can see black excellence, Latinx excellence with and black joy and Latinx joy and like know that that is like the, the focal point of, of teaching and that we're going to ensure that every kid um, has a space of belonging, inclusion and rigor and meaning like that all takes work because that is not the dominant narrative that dominant socialization that's happening in our country. And so we spend a lot of time doing that and we do that in collaboration with community, with um, often school equity leaders. We, we co-design and we think through how, how might we have the direct conversations that we all need to have, but also create it safe for people to be vulnerable. Um, we work in a lot of places where we might be some of the first facilitators to really have a conversation about race um, with folks. You, you may not know this, but in our country, it's about um, 80% of the teachers are white, but about just now over 50% of the school-age children are children of color. And so there, there's a mismatch often um, between um, who is the race of the teacher and the and the race of the students. And it's not to say, obviously, that teachers and students have to be the same race in order for a classroom to be um, like um, excellent, but it's that there are crucial conversations that need to be had. And so we've been working on that uh, for a while. And I think at this moment, um, just feel like the, the, the urgency and need for that even more. 
And I think for our own organization, I think um, we've been having a lot of conversations internally now for the last four or five years about how we are kind of reproducing um, white dominant culture traits in our own organization in terms of who has access to power, who, who gets to make decisions, who, who is leading. And I think that's, that's been a really powerful um, journey for us uh, too. Um, and I think they're like, we've made um, a lot of progress and I think we still have uh, so much more work to do. Um, and I think the thing that's been really, really powerful about the present moment is to just name that kind of equity and anti-racism is, is everyone's job. It's gotta be like, we all have to feel that, that in every moment there are opportunities to disrupt, to heal, to connect, to think about how we set uh, people of color up to thrive in this work, um, that there's so many opportunities to do that in every moment. So it lives in everything. And at the same time, it's not just about individual actors. There's actually organizational responsibilities too, to make sure mm-hmm. that we're naming priorities clearly, that there's the time and that the resources and vision so that people feel safe to do that. And so I think there have been times where it's really easy to be like, oh, well, you know, individuals will just be more equitable and that's everyone's responsibility or like the organization will do it or those people over there are going to lead the equity work. And this year really everybody else. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. This team will take care of that. But I think we're, we're trying to do both and trying to name that it's also, it's about collective um, action, but it's also about individual responsibility and to not simplify it. I think has been really hard and trying to think about it as a cultural thing that we're going to build together. Um, and also to just try to define and co-create what we mean by like an equitable anti-racist culture for us as an organization and not just have it be a top-down definition, but to really ask like, Hey, what, what, what will you need to feel more free, to feel more belonging, to feel more powerful, to feel more creative, to feel like you can actually do your best work uh, for the kids and teachers that we're seeking to show up um, and really support. There's so much in, in what you just shared. I can be briefer, Sam. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just the way you articulate yourself and, and what you're working on. It's just like, I think about just for me, it's just like, coming back to, to myself and knowing that I, like, I have to do this work in me and also do it collectively, do it with people of my own race and then also work with people in other races. And and I think that's, um, it's really important to, to work as a collective on this. Like, it's not just one person's responsibility to to make these shifts or these changes. I do think people who are in leadership roles have a little more responsibility on their shoulders given their role, you right. know, who they are. And um I think what what tends to happen in in a lot of conversations that I've heard, it's like blaming it's it's them you know, or it's us versus them. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've talked about in, um, or I've heard talked about in, in my Hakomi training is kind of zooming out to this bigger perspective and making it about the we, like how do we, yes, these things are happening to 
like us on an individual level, us uh, based on our race, based on um, who who we are, but it 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 ultimately it's like how can can we all uh, kind of drop our I think there there is a narrative happening in 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 us, and just because of what's happened based on history and um, based on what's happened in our individual lives, and it's like yes, there's a story. Is that the truth? Is that what we need to believe, or can we drop that? Can yeah. can we see a new way forward? Can we see a new way of being? And I I think that's really what I hear you speaking to. Yeah. As like creating a new way forward for all of us. Totally. Yeah. I wanted to, to also, um, there's not like a, <laughs> an eloquent way of coming back to this, but it, it's something that it's just really struck me and um, you're more than welcome to just say, actually, I, I don't want to talk about this, but I, I'd, I'd love to maybe just, if it's accessible for you, just feeling into that experience of when you were a teenager and at this point in which you felt like the only option was to take your own life, what would you, as who you are in this moment, say to that younger part of yourself, knowing the struggle and the pain? I feel like this is exactly the question you asked when we had a, a Hakomi session about a year ago, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I, I think it was really powerful. And I really appreciated that um, it was, it's interesting in that question to be able to travel back in time and to kind of see that person that you were and like a really dark moment through the lens of who you are now. And I feel like it is, it feels like a really powerful question, I think for, for everyone, because I do think like um, we're all kind of carrying those wounds with us into the current day or those lessons and that um, they affect obviously how we show up in all of our future interactions. And so it was such a powerful moment um, Sam, when you asked me that question and I, and it's interesting, I actually had the opportunity to talk to someone else, um, and ask him a similar question. And he's like, Oh, that, 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 and, and it was interesting to like record all the things that he said and then kind of share back to him. And I, I think it was, it was powerful uh, for both of us. But, um, so the 15 year old self that was really close to taking his own life, I would say you were worthy you are enough. Um, you will get through this. You are loved and you will be loved. I would say that I know this feels impossible and that you feel so alone and like the only one, um, but you're not, um, that you'll find your people someday. Um, and they will love you for you. Uh, and, and you will be more you than you will ever realize in this moment. And you will keep discovering who you are for many years and you will be, you will be happy. Um, and um, don't do it. Uh, um, and that it feels trite to say something like that. I know that it will sound trite 
to you and your 15, you 15 year old version of me, it'll all sound trite, but just know that it's, it's true. Um, yeah. Those, those are some of the things. Sorry, go ahead, Sam. Where would you say that part of you lives in, in your body? Definitely in this kind of chest area, but also I felt like chills kind of on my shoulders as I was, I was talking through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I, I did feel like, like almost something like, like a heat where my tear ducts were like, almost like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to tear up as I, um, as I say this. And I, and you know what the thing is, those words that I'm saying to uh, my 15 year old self, I could just as well be saying to my 41 year old self right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. what's so beautiful about that um, exercise that we kind of, you, you just, we, none of us know where we're headed, but I think that those words that we would say to ourselves in our darkest moments are, are perhaps often the things we should, we should still be saying to ourselves on, on a daily basis. <laughs> well, I think something you just alluded to is, is like that, that, the parts of ourselves are always with us, you know, and it's not like they just go away. They're, they're, they're with us. Yeah. And I I do, I I think it is important to, as we reflect on those past experiences and if we're offering words of wisdom to younger parts of ourselves to remember to offer that to us as we are in this moment. Um, Yeah. Because oftentimes we need to, to hear that again, be reassured and reminded. I, uh, I had just, <laughs> I know there's been a couple of times throughout this um, podcast where I just, I've just been in awe um, by just listening to you and and hearing you share so openly and from your heart and um also intellectually just knowing just who you are and i i I just think it's you're you're a huge gift to this world and and i'm really just i love that you're in the work that you're doing and and what you're hoping to um, put out there to, to impact more than just a small group, but hopefully, um, yeah, just the, the future generation. (laughs) So thank you. It's incredibly kind, Sam. And you are, you're also a gift and a light. And I, I love that you are, you're, you're making spaces to have conversations with folks and to share those. So, um, openly with the world and to, I feel like you do such a nice job of kind of, of, of keeping an open heart and a vulnerable heart and a curious like presence through, through all, all of, and it's such a beautiful model for, for kind of listening and centering for slowing down and for um, like connecting. Um, Cause I think, I think what I really appreciate about this is that I think people are lonely and they could think that this is a time where they can't connect. Um, and I don't, and, and certainly we have to connect differently, but I think we can, we can still be us and we can still find ways to kind of reach across and kind of hold each other in, in different ways. And I feel, uh, grateful, uh, that you asked me to have a conversation with you.
Yeah, we're not alone. We're all in this together. So that's just something that I try to remind myself and and offer to to people who are just feeling really alone during this time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Of course. Of course. Thank you all so much for listening today. If any of you'd like to find out more about the work that I do, you can go to samsebastian.com. That's S-A-M-S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to me via email. That's sam at samsebastian.com. Much love.